Welcome, everyone. My name is Cassie. If we haven't met, Alex and I are married. We uh, lead pastor Midtown Church together. We're so glad you are here. I loved hearing Kim's story this morning. Um, just a few weeks ago, we were sitting down over breakfast, and I learned so much from this lady all the time. She teaches me so much about generosity uh, and longevity, and um, we were literally praying about that promotion because Kim is one of the hardest workers I know, and she's like training people that are like steps ahead of her in the company. And to hear uh, about that promotion is so cool. Really an answer to prayer. It's awesome. Uh, growing up, we lived at least eight hours away from any family. And so uh, my parents really kind of created a family of their own in Cincinnati. Uh, we had three families, there were three of us that were all really, really close. Uh, us, the Sherwood family, uh, the Dothard family, and the Enns family. And so it could be said growing up that I had three moms. Uh, one mom was Miss Adela, the other was Miss Venus, and she was no nonsense. And then my mom, obviously, of course, uh, Tamara. And it was with these three moms that I felt loved and supported and cared for as kids. It was all girls. Uh, my, me and my two sisters, Della's two girls and Venus's daughter, we were like the girl gang growing up. And uh, this past summer was probably one of the hardest times for that little family of ours because Della, Miss Della, had been battling cancer for several years, had been in and out of remission, but the cancer had come back, and it had come back stronger than it ever had before. And so we were preparing, actually, uh, for my sister, Annie, to get married. She was getting married in California. Uh, Della's daughter, Augusta, was supposed to be in the wedding. All of our moms were supposed to be there, the Dothard family, the Enns family. And we get a call about a week before the wedding from Augusta, Della's daughter. And she says, hey, the cancer has advanced really far. There's no way we can travel. Uh, Venus is going to stay here and help me out. I am, like, taking care of my mom, like, 24-7 right now. And so with a heavy heart, uh, we moved on, we did the wedding, and the very next day, Alex and I wake up so exhausted, right, and I get a call from Augusta, and she says, hey, I don't think mom's going to make it. Um, sorry, I'm going to get a little emotional. I don't think mom's going to make it for maybe more than a couple months, but certainly not to my scheduled wedding. Augusta was engaged to be married in September. And so would you come next week and would you officiate the wedding for us in our home so that mom can be there? It's like, yeah, of course. So I hopped on a plane to go to Cincinnati and I walk into Della's house, my mom, the house that I grew up in effectively. And I see this woman before me that I barely recognize. Her face is gaunt, her hair is gray. She can barely speak above a whisper or walk. <laughs> and in a moment that was supposed to be so joyous, right? Two people getting married, new life, were simultaneously experiencing such great sorrow. And I'd like to be able to tell you that there was a happy ending to this story, that all the prayers, all the miraculous healing took place, that there was like a happily ever after, and Della was healed. But a month later, I found myself in Cincinnati again, and instead of officiating a wedding, I was attending a funeral. And I can't tell you, like, the deep sorrow that I felt in that moment, or I still even feel today, 
when I think about my mom that lost her best friend of 35 years. Can you imagine having a best friend for 35 years? Someone she did life with every single day, probably called <laughs> almost every day to talk on the phone. And then Augusta and Adele, her daughters, who are 22 and 24 years of age when they lost their mom. It was one of the hardest moments I've ever experienced in my life. Felt like all the prayers had gone unanswered, God hadn't heard, and we were stuck in a situation that just felt really miserable. The no clear reasoning, no clear point, just sadness and despair. When you uh, hear a story like this, I'm sure you think of your own. Uh, today is obviously September 11th, and uh, I remember that day very clearly as a child, the immense suffering that happened in our country. But several of you have a parent that sat you down and said, hey, the doctors have told me I only have this amount of time to live. Or that phone call that you got about a grandparent who passed. Or that moment when your partner, your spouse looks at you and says, I just can't do this anymore. Or that doctor that looks at you and says, there's no easy way to say this, but... Suffering always seems to be looming just under the surface of the water. Waiting to bite, waiting to strike, waiting to pull us under into the dark, cold deep of our despair. And in this moments, it can feel like we struggle to just keep our head above the water. Treading water, doggy paddling, just trying to keep oxygen flowing into our lungs. We find ourselves reaching out to God more frequently and zealously than we ever have before, but we also sometimes find God more distant and far away than he has ever felt. We reach out, just like grasping for a touch, something to pull us to shore, to take us out of this suffering that we're in. We've seen this story play out two, three years now. As COVID has ravaged our nation, our world, we've seen great suffering. And as a result, two things have happened when it's come to the church. We've seen people running towards God with more desperation than they ever have before. We've also seen people running away from God with more frustrations than they've ever had before. And this revealed that the churches that exist and the church people of the West are way more acquainted with the God of a mountaintop than they are with the God of a valley. Largely, the church has done a great job celebrating mountaintop moments, miracles, right? Financial breakthroughs, healings. We did that today. All really good things, but the church in the West has also done a really poor job developing a spirituality that actually walks with Jesus in the valley. We struggle to lament, to tell unresolved stories like Della's. We struggle to weep with those who weep and ultimately to be present with those that are suffering. In the words of Pastor Tyler Staten, the faith that feels so strong in that summit all of a sudden feels so flimsy in the, in the valley. 
And so when suffering inevitably does strike, when it bites and it threatens to pull us down under, we often find ourselves all alone in pain with no one to lean on and wondering, where are you, God? Where'd you go? So today, the question that we have is, what would it look like to actually develop a theology of suffering? One that learns how to walk with Jesus as well in the valley as we know how to walk with him on the mountaintop. What would it look like to have a theology of suffering that recognizes Jesus in loss, hurt, pain, disease, and even death? And that's the question we're going to work to answer today. Welcome to Midtown Church. <laughs> I, a couple weeks ago, gave a sermon on, like, father wounds, and then now I'm giving a sermon on suffering, and I'm like, wow, we really just gave me the depressing sermons, the sermon series. That's good. Yeah, no, you need, we just need a little, yeah, light breather there. <laughs> Uh, today, we're actually going to spend a majority of our time in Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 48. So if you go ahead and turn there with me, if you want to use that QR code, you can access it on your phone. Uh, but we've been journeying through the Apostles' Creed. It's a liturgical prayer, the prayer that we just prayed, that was actually written in the fourth century by the Western Catholic Church, and it was a way of fully summarizing our faith, the story of the scriptures. In fact, uh, individuals uh, in the early fourth century would require people to recite the Apostles' Creed as they were being baptized. This one unifying thing that helps us know where we sit in the story of the scriptures and in our relationship with our Father God. Last week, Pastor Amanda actually unpacked the fact that Jesus was sent to earth as, yes, fully God, but also fully human in the form of a baby boy. That God chose to actually humble himself, to fully experience all the difficulties of humanity. And it is with that in mind that we come to our next phrase today. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That line, yet again, firmly places Jesus in human history at a fixed point in time, just as his birth story did. And the authors of the creed took great care to actually include Pontius Pilate's name, a Roman governor of the Jerusalem uh, province at the time that's documented in lots of other works, to emphasize the actual factual life of Jesus's death and then resurrection. It's also kind of important to note that up until this point in the creed, it would appear that all is well with the world, right? There's no hint of trouble, impending doom, anything looming over the horizon. And then the moment we get to the crux, the middle of the creed and enter Jesus's story, we quickly realize all is not well. The moment Jesus enters this world, he's met with violent resistance and the creation slowly turns yet again against the creator. Interestingly enough, if you had a time machine and you could go back and ask some of the earliest Christians to sum up Jesus' life in one word, some of them may actually say suffering. This is evident in Jesus' own words when he says, speaking from experience in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. 
In Luke chapter 24, verse 26, the author writes, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things? In Acts chapter 17, verse 3, the author says, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. And again, in Hebrews 2, we see suffering used as a formula to refer to Jesus' life and death. The earliest Christians purposely imbued the scriptures with stories of Jesus' suffering, lest people just think of him as a far-off, supernatural being that was impervious to pain. And similarly, today, the church has made the same mistakes that many early Christians did. In its eagerness to occupy mountaintop moments, we ignore the valley and we forget the humanness, the physical pain, and the suffering that Jesus endured while he was on this earth. Benjamin Myers in his book on the Apostles' Creed says this, Christians today might be more tempted by the allure of a triumphalist faith or by a distorted gospel that promises worldly satisfaction and success. But we are baptized into a way of a suffering Lord who lays on his followers not a crown, but a cross. We will share in Christ's glory, yes, but to the extent that we also share in his sufferings. One of the best way to resist this temptation, to be blinded by the allure of a triumphalist faith or distorted gospel that promises only good things, is to actually understand the story of our suffering Savior. So today we're going to look at one of Jesus' hardest moments in life, the day of his execution. We're picking up here in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus has actually just come from a Passover meal. He goes to the Mount of Olives where he often goes to pray, to spend alone time with God. And he realizes, he knows before he even gets there, but he realizes as he's sitting there that tonight is the night. The fullness of his vocation sits in and he realizes, I am going to be tried, arrested, killed, and face the forces of darkness and evil. And this is where we find ourselves in verse 39, it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, O God. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of falling blood down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? 
In this passage today, we see Jesus experience the fullness of human suffering in four themes. Theme one, loneliness. Two, anxiety. Three, broken relationships. And four, ultimately death. To answer the question I posed earlier, what would it look like to develop a theology of suffering that's able to recognize Jesus in the lowest of moments? We need to examine his story in his lowest of moments. So today we're going to go through these four themes together. Theme one, loneliness. Jesus knew that it was his God-given vocation that he would be arrested, tried, and killed. But he also knew that for the church to survive and for the people of Jesus Christ to spread the gospel, he was going to have to die alone. See, Jesus was viewed by the Jewish and Roman leaders as a rebel, an insurrectionist, a threat to power. And someone that was intent in overthrowing the Roman leadership at the time would not have just been tried, arrested, and killed on their own. But all of those that associated themselves with that person's cause would also be captured, tried, and killed. This is a way of squashing any movements that threatened the Roman Empire from their onset. But Jesus could not have this happen. He could not have the future leaders of the church, his disciples, the carriers of the gospel killed. And so in this moment, he realizes, I must fall, but they cannot fall with me. And so he tells them, pray. Pray earnestly that you may not fall into temptation to rise up and fight, to draw your sword, lest you also go down with me. But even as Jesus faces this death that he knows he must endure alone, he also realizes he's praying alone. For disciples, instead of praying, fall asleep on his troubles, his greatest moment of need. Not only does Jesus feel alone in his impending arrest, but he experiences loneliness as he slowly makes his way to the cross. Crucifixion was not only about death. It was about disgrace. And in a culture of honor and shame, the pain of the humiliation of dying on a cross was worse than bruise after bruise, slash after slash, punch after punch, and lash after lash. In the words of Benjamin Myers, to be crucified was to be cast out of the human community, rejected by God, the world, a fate that was worse than the death itself. And then Jesus, he sits on that cross for nine long hours, all alone in the world. And he cries out, God, why have I been forsaken? Why have I been left all alone to die? Suffering can be really, really lonely. You thought you had some family and friends, some best friends even, that were by your side and they fall asleep on your struggles. Suffering can make you feel like no one understands what you're going through. 
alone in the deep, dark waters. It can feel like we've been stripped of every connection, even our connection to God. And we sit there wondering, how did I end up all alone? God, God, why have I been forsaken? Have you ever experienced this type of loneliness? The one that makes you feel like you're going underwater. The good news today is Jesus did. He experienced loneliness. Theme two, anxiety. As Jesus sits in that garden alone, crying out to God, the full weight of his job, his vocation begins to descend upon him. He realizes he's not just facing human arrest, trial, torture, and death, but he's appointed to go to the darkest of places, carrying the fate of Israel and the whole world on his shoulders, hoping he makes it out on the other side. The horror of the situation hits him as he falls down and kneels in the garden. He realizes the terror the God-forsaken darkness that he is about to face that awaits him. A place where evil powers reign, will do their worst in every possible way imaginable. And with this realization, Jesus experiences extreme mental torment. Crying out to God, he asks, is there any other way? Did I mishear you? Was I misguided? Will you rescue me like you rescued Abraham and Isaac? Will you come in victory in the 11th hour? And with all of these thoughts swirling in his head, Jesus's mental agony causes him to begin to sweat big red drops of blood. This particular medical detail that the author Luke, who's also a doctor, includes in this account has actually been verified by modern research and science. In extreme duress, stress, anxiety, and fear, horror, one can actually sweat big drops of blood. Suffering can cause great and clinical anxiety. The ease, the carefree demeanor that you once had seems to just go away in a flash. Snap of the fingers. Your heart begins to quit in. Your palms begin to sweat. Can't sit still. Your mind begins to swirl as the waters swirl around you and threaten to pull you under and you wonder, am I going to make it through? Or am I gonna drown? If you ever experienced the soul-crushing weight of anxiety, that inability to just get up out of bed, if you have, Jesus did. Jesus experienced anxiety. Theme three, broken relationships. As Jesus spread his message of radical love farther and wider, his critics only grew. Even those closest to him began to reject him. In fact, neighbors, schoolmates, family friends in Nazareth rejected his teachings, ridiculed him, and nearly threw him off a cliff. 
And yet, he always had 12 people that he could rely on. Friends, brothers that he knew would never leave his side until they did. That very night of his greatest need, his most anxious hour, the height of his suffering and feelings of aloneness, his best friends betray him, one with a kiss for a bag of silver, and the other because he cared just too much what other people thought. Judas, somebody who walked side by side with Jesus for three years, decides to portray Jesus's location to the Jewish and Roman rulers of the day. And he does so for a simple payday with plans to do so in the most intimate of ways. Judas approaches Jesus to give him a kiss, a greeting that you would only give someone out of great affection but instead is, is supposed to be an identifier for the Roman arresting officials. And Jesus, in this utter moment of disappointment, sadness, betrayal, and pain, cries out to Judas, you would betray me this way? This is how you treat your friend? I've poured into you. I've invested in you. I've loved you. I've cared for you. I've drawn you in. I've taken you in as my own. And you lead me to the slaughterhouse with a kiss. And Peter, Peter of all people, who just a few hours later said, Jesus, I'd be willing to die for you, denies him not once, not twice, but three times because of what other people might think. Suffering can cause and be caused by broken relationships. Someone you thought was your dearest friend, your confidant, they gaslight you. They gossip about you. They take advantage of you. They lie about you. They steal from you. They slander you. Or they just simply stop showing up for you. The pain, it rips at your heart. It's worse than any dagger. It cuts deep. You cry out in agony and you wonder, why won't someone pull me from the deep or just simply jump in the water with me? What did I do to deserve this? Have you ever experienced the searing loss, the pain of a broken relationship? Jesus, he did. Theme for death. Jesus not only experiences the fullness of human suffering, but he also experiences the fullness of human life itself as he submits to the thing that we all eventually undergo, and that is death. Not only does Jesus face death, but he submits to it in the most shameful and painful of ways. But the great irony of this story is simultaneously, as he faces the most shameful death, he also attains the highest glory. Because Jesus chose to succumb to morality, he actually makes human nature immortal. 
He redeems every aspect of our human condition and existence, yes, even including death, as he embraces it as the Son of God. In the words of Ben Myers, because in Jesus God has fully shared our condition, there is no human experience that can alienate us from God. Every affliction is an opportunity to identify Jesus, to suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. We die differently because the Son of God has touched our frail mortality and drawn it into the wider context of his life. We die differently because we know that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. To walk with Jesus in the valley as well as we do on the mountaintop is to understand that Jesus himself experienced every aspect of our human suffering, every aspect of the human condition, loneliness, anxiety, broken relationships, and even death. Nothing, not even suffering, can separate us from God. However, many times when we suffer, we find it hard to see God at all, right? To feel his touch. It feels so far away, so impersonal, so silent. So the question remains, how do I identify God in the midst of so much suffering? David Brooks, opinion writer for the New York Times, suggests the following process for dealing with suffering. And this process, which is based in scientific study and research, is one that very much reflects Jesus' journey. It helps us to recognize God even in the valley. And my encouragement to you today is this. Just as you have learned to walk with Jesus on that mountaintop, learn to walk with him in the valley. Imitate Jesus with these three steps. Step one, experience grief. Just as Jesus himself fully and physically experienced grief, so should we. If you needed permission to grieve, Jesus gave it to you. Brooks writes, the first step is often slow and physical. The body is still in the savage grip of raw pain. It takes time for the body to experience enough new feelings of safety and connection with other people to contradict the shock of loss. Take time to go off as Jesus did. Cry out to God in pain and anxiety. Plead with him. Ask him for another way. Pour out the fullness of your human emotion. He can handle it because he experienced it. He knows your pain. Step two. First, we experience the grief. And step two, we begin to re-story, re-story. Slowly but surely, this process of re-storying begins. 
As we go to God in prayer day after day, maybe angry, but nonetheless, as we journal, as we read scriptures, as we seek out Christian community, as we see a therapist, a counselor, the fragments begin to form a coherent story. We start to make sense of our experiences and the world around us. We become more aware of seemingly related things, all of the summon having connections. We find ourselves in this space we don't quite yet understand it all, but we have grown somewhat cautiously comfortable with the phrase Jesus uttered in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Step three, a new narrative begins to emerge. There's a process of regaining control over our own beliefs. When suffering strikes, we lose control over our mind. It begins to wildly jump from idea to unhelpful conclusion to the next. I'm to blame for what happened. The whole world is unsafe. This pain hurts just too bad. I think I'm going to stuff it down. And in the words of David Brooks, at moments like these, our thoughts don't just happen. Our thoughts have us. But through the process of restoring, we begin to take control over our mind, our beliefs and our emotions. We challenge what's going on in our head and we begin to prevent from continuing to struggle. And a new narrative begins to rise up. A new narrative emerges in Jesus when he explains to his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, simply three, four days later, he says, was it not necessary that I should suffer these things to enter into glory? Just days earlier, he had said, God, is there another way? Jesus has a new narrative that begins to emerge. We begin to write new narratives at well, as well. Ones that begin to recognize Jesus' full participation in our condition, our ability to be a bridge for others that are in pain. It may take months, it may take years, it may take a lifetime, but eventually we're able to adopt a new narrative that says, I may never understand what happened. It may never make sense, but I can be more understanding towards others and have a greater understanding of my suffering Savior. What a narrative. We can find God in moments of suffering when we allow ourselves to experience grief, restory and emerge with a new narrative, one that knows how to walk with Jesus in a valley. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died and was buried. Let us pray. Lord, 
We don't often talk about suffering, about our pain. Because many times it's been met with resistance in the church. But God, the church should be the one place where we're able to experience suffering, to walk with someone who's literally been through it all. Jesus, in moments, we feel the pain rip at our souls. Help us, however impossible as it seems, to recognize you in the valley, to see you in our loneliness, to see a new side of you in our anxiety, to see you revealed in our broken relationships and even in the death we experience all around us. Lord, as we suffer, may we become more like you, our suffering Savior, knowing that as we share in your full suffering, we also share in your full glory. to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.